Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Can history better inform us about Vladimir Putin's purported motivations for his bloody invasion of Ukraine and his grievances against the West? In this episode, Cold War historian Mary Serrati discusses her extensive research into U.S.-Russia relations since the fall of the Berlin Wall. She writes through the storyline of the decisions made by American presidents about NATO enlargement and Russian leaders' reactions to them. Her book's title, Not One Inch, comes from 1989 discussions between Mikhail Gorbachev and Secretary of State James Baker about the unification of East and West Germany. It's a phrase which Putin often cites. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Historian Mary Elise Serrati, what is the goal of your latest book, Not One Inch? My goal is to provide evidence as part of an ongoing discussion about the history of NATO expansion. There's obviously been a long debate about NATO enlargement, but a lot of it has been based on uh, personal supposition or personal memories, which can fade. Human memory is not perfect. Also, direct participants in events They only have seen one part of an event and not seen events from the other side. So given the huge importance of this debate for today's world, not least because tragically Putin is using it as an excuse to brutalize Ukraine, I wanted to provide documentary evidence, hard evidence, much of which I got declassified, to establish a narrative of what actually happened. So that was the main goal of my book. What's the title referred to? The title actually has a twofold meaning. So in the first instance, it refers to a by now infamous controversy over what the former Secretary of State, James Baker, said to the last leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev. Now, let me give you a little bit of context, and then I'll explain specifically what knowledge means. The context is that in early 1990, the Berlin Wall had just come down, and that was an unexpected event. As I describe in another one of my books, The Collapse, it was not planned. It was not meant to happen when it did. So that obviously upset the apple cart of post-Cold War European security. And so the question was, what next? If the Cold War order is clearly fading, what is going to replace it? And it became apparent that, among other things, Germans wanted to unify. They wanted to move beyond the Cold War division of their country and become a united country. The problem was that back in 1945, Nazi Germany had surrendered at the end of World War II unconditionally. And unconditionally meant unconditionally. There were no limits, for example. So that surrender was still valid. There were still four victor powers in divided Germany, the U.S., France, Britain, and the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union in particular, in addition to its legal rights emerging from that unconditional surrender, had nearly 400,000 troops. As a result, in order for Germany to unify, 
Moscow had to be convinced to give up both its legal rights and its troops. The question was how to do that. What would Moscow want in exchange? And so as part of an early speculative conversation, Secretary of State James Baker, the American Secretary of State, said to Mikhail Gorbachev in a speculative way, among other ideas, how about this? How about you let your half of Germany go and we agree that NATO will move not one inch eastward? In other words, not one inch beyond where it is today, February 9th, 1990, <clears throat> which is on the Cold War front line, which runs through the middle of divided Germany. And Mikhail Gorbachev <clears throat> said words to the effect of, certainly that sounds good, we should continue discussing that, but nothing formal results. James Baker then goes home to his boss, President George H.W. Bush, who's also his old friend and former tennis doubles partner, so they speak very frankly to each other. And this is from classified information that I've worked with for this book. <clears throat> President Bush says to uh, Secretary Baker, Jim, you've leaned too far forward over your skis. Think about that. That doesn't make any sense. If we leave NATO frozen on the Cold War front line and it doesn't move not one inch, that means, among other things, that United Germany will be half in and half out of NATO. And that makes no sense. And also, Gorbachev didn't ask you for that. He's not pushing for it. We don't have to offer that. We can figure out other ways to unify Germany. I'm president, and, and I think it's important to maintain both NATO and its ability to enlarge. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but the exact quotations are in my book, Not One Inch. And so one of the newest documents that I found, recently classified, showed that Baker had to hurriedly write back to allies and say, sorry about that language, it's causing confusion, drop it, we're not going to use it anymore. The problem is it took Mikhail Gorbachev a while to notice. And he starts pressing in the summer and fall of 1990 to get that in writing. But that is now no longer on offer. That was just a speculative claim. And when push comes to shove, when there's actually a treaty negotiated, the treaty it gives Moscow something different. In exchange for Moscow's willingness to let its half of Germany go, that treaty gives Moscow financial inducements. And here's the key part. That treaty explicitly allows NATO to move Article 5 eastward across the former Cold War front line. In other words, it allows the opposite of what Baker and Gorbachev had speculatively discussed back in February. And Gorbachev not only authorizes signature of that document, not only takes the financial payments, but also has his country ratify it as well. Now, Vladimir Putin today cherry picks this history. He takes the not one inch from the beginning in February that was speculative and ignores the fact that his country signed and ratified the treaty stating the exact opposite. So I seized on that phrase and I made it into the title of the book for a second reason, because that phrase then becomes contentious, right? You start to have Moscow arguing that you know, not one inch of Europe is off limits to NATO. That's not right. And so that's why I decided to make that into the title of the book. I, of course, was then uh, horrified when President Putin started repeating this phrase, not one inch, in press conferences, which he does uh, on a regular basis, but of course, without the context. Well, let's actually, as an example, show uh, a speech, the hour-long speech that he made in February, right before the invasion began, February 21st, uh, 2022, where we hear him use the phrase. They tried to convince us that NATO is a peaceful and defensive bloc, so there is no threat for Russia. And they, again, 
suggest we believe their words, but we already know the value of such words. Back in 1990, when we talked about uniting Germany, the USA promised to the Soviet leadership that neither jurisdiction nor military presence would not move an inch to the east, and unification of Germany would not lead to the eastward expansion of NATO. And I'm quoting here, so they were saying all these things, they were giving us assurances, but these were just words. Professor Sarati, so for Vladimir Putin, is NATO enlargement a cause or a pretext for his war? Hmm. I, so uh, by way of background, let me say that as a historian, the only phenomenon I have never seen in history is monocausality. In other words, important events happen for multiple reasons, not one reason. So against that background, uh, I think it's important to understand that the invasion of Ukraine comes out of a number of motivations. Now, I, I add I'm not approving any of these motivations. I'm just summarizing them. Putin has uh, a mixture of grievances, and NATO enlargement is one of them. A, a bigger grievance is his feeling that the Ukrainians do not deserve a separate state or nation. Now, obviously, the Ukrainians themselves feel very differently and are heroically defending their country. I, I am in, in admiration of the way they are defending their country. But Putin feels that, in essence, the Ukrainians must be under Moscow's control and must be under his control. And it is, it is an abomination that they are not. And he is justified in what he is doing uh, because of that belief. But as, then as part of the mixture... He also feels that he needs to defend Russia from Ukraine, potentially uh, becoming a member of NATO and Ukraine expanding its footprint there. Now, again, this is where Putin, he, he really cherry picks history. As I said before, he brings up this phrase, not one inch from February 1990, and then ignores the fact that Moscow signed and ratified a treaty stating the exact opposite in September 1990. And similarly, he talks about the risk to Russia of Ukraine becoming a member of NATO. And it is correct that the NATO Bucharest summit of 2008 issued a communique saying that both Georgia and Ukraine will become members of NATO. So again, that, that, that is accurate, but he ignores the context that there was no practical plan to make that happen, that the member states of NATO made clear it was a very long-term prospect, there was no actual move to make it happen. So he plays up this idea of NATO in Ukraine as another reason. And there's there's a third and broader grievance, which is his, his anger at the way the post-Cold War security order in Europe evolved in a way so unfavorable to Moscow. He, of course, witnessed the collapse of Soviet power personally because he was a secret police officer, a KGB officer, in East Germany in 1989. I actually was also in West Berlin in 1989. I was an exchange student in West Berlin in 1989, which is where my interest in this topic comes from. So I was in divided Berlin. Uh, he was in Dresden. I, I, I didn't know him, but I just remember the spirit of that time 
And for me as a Westerner, it was, it was obviously wonderful, right? Seeing Central and Eastern Europeans throw off Soviet control and gain the ability to have many more life choices. But for him, it was a horrifying experience. He thought Moscow should have used force to resist that. So all these grievances come together to recap the sense that Ukraine should not be independent, that NATO should not be allowed to enlarge, that, that Moscow should be able to use force to defend itself. All those come together. Of course, none of that justifies the invasion, but those are the mixture of grievances that he's made clear inspired what he did. Yeah, staying with your telling of the story of Lieutenant Colonel Vladimir Putin in Germany when the wall came down, the phrase Moscow is silent resonated with him. What's it referred to? Yeah. So, as I said, he was a, a young mid-level KGB officer in Dresden. And he, uh, he that on a certain night in December, when there was a, a peaceful protest, he was the senior officer on duty. And some peaceful protesters, after going to the Stasi headquarters, that was the East German secret police, then came to the KGB outpost where he worked. That was the Soviet secret police, which because of, as I said, the unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany, had extensive branches throughout East Germany. That was part of the ongoing Soviet presence in Eastern Germany lasting from World War II. And in addition to the KGB outpost, there were, as I said before, nearly 400,000 Soviet troops in East Germany. So Putin, and, and he's written this himself, this comes from a, a memoir he issued called First Person. Uh, he said he was horrified by those peaceful protesters coming to the KGB outpost in Dresden. He threatened to shoot them, and he called nearby Soviet troops for backup to do so, to use violence. The person who entered the throne said, I am not going to authorize that without explicit approval from Moscow, and Moscow is silent. And Moscow stayed silent, and Putin did not give that approval. He did not use force. The Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, refrained from using force to reestablish Soviet control, for which he, in my opinion, deservedly later won the Nobel Peace Prize. But in Putin's opinion, that was a huge mistake. And Putin has said this repeatedly in interviews, that Moscow should have used force, should not have been silent, should have struck back violently. Uh, Putin developed this philosophy that you hit hard at the very beginning, so your opponent cannot rise to his feet for a second blow. And he felt very strongly that Moscow should not have been silent. And so these grievances are, are still in him. And it's important to remember, even though these events for most people are within living memory, it's slightly different for Putin because for Putin, these are lived memory. He are, personally remembers these events. They are personal grievances, which makes them all the more searing for him. So obviously he decided that Moscow should no longer be silent. Uh, for the 30th anniversary of Soviet collapse, which just happened this past December. Uh, that's actually the reason I published my book, Not One Inch, because I, I was I was worried. I, I could see working with the documents or the interviews I did that I could see this grievance growing, and I, I was afraid that he might do something violent on the 30th anniversary. And uh, he, uh, he, he did. I, I, I have never been sorrier to have guessed right. As a, as a cold-blooded analyst, I'm happy to see my analysis was correct. But as a, a warm-blooded human being, I'm just horrified and sickened by the pictures I'm seeing coming out of Ukraine. But it is consistent with Putin's attitude that this, somehow this was unfair, that Moscow should not be silent, that it should strike back violently, and even that it should strike hard, hit hard the first time. He tried to decapitate Ukraine by taking key, basically, as soon as the invasion began. Fortunately for everyone, he did not succeed. But this is all consistent with what he's been saying for you know, his entire professional life. 
for uh, people that are wishing for a leadership change in Russia, is Vladimir Putin a singular individual or is he representative of a generation of Russians who went through the experiences you described? Huh. Hard question. It's always hard to ascertain true public opinion in a dictatorship. There are, are some ways to get around it, but it's, it's really hard. Obviously, you know, today, in today's Russia, where you can be thrown in jail simply for holding up a blank piece of paper, because everyone can guess what you really want to have on that piece of paper is no war. Uh, you know, it's obviously risky if you approach by a pollster to give your real opinion. So it's hard to say. I think uh, based on my research, I would say that Putin's opinions are not solely his alone, right? There are many displaced servants of the former Soviet state who share his grievances. But that is not the only view in Russia. I think very much of this war as Putin's war and the war of a small group around Putin, not as Russia's war. This is not a war that, uh, you know, the broad mass of the Russian public is calling for. In fact, you can see that Putin's got a problem by the way that he has penalized even using the word war, right? It's, it's now a punishable offense to refer to what is happening in Ukraine as a war. There's a whole bunch of other euphemisms you're supposed to use. And that suggests to me that Putin has a sense that he has a problem. If, if he's got to punish people for using the word war, it's because he's afraid of using it and afraid of what it might inspire. So that suggests to me that he has a problem. Now, that being said, he has a very firm hold on power. And uh, it, it is, I, I, um, I, I think it is unlikely, but it would be desirable if there could be, shall we say, personnel change at the top. I think regime change is probably unlikely. I, I don't think Russia is suddenly going to magically democratize, but if perhaps the strong men around him realize that he's gradually turning his country into something like North Korea and they don't want to live in North Korea for the rest of their lives, if he at least could be replaced, in other words, personnel change, not regime change, that would, I think, perhaps put an end to the worst parts of the conflict. Again, this wouldn't make Russia a democracy, this wouldn't make everything wonderful, but that would be, I think, in the context of possible outcomes, good outcome. I hasten to repeat, it's not likely. He has a very firm grasp on power. And so to a certain extent, he doesn't need to worry about public opinion unless it boils over. So he needs to keep it from boiling over. And apparently he's afraid that word war might cause it to boil over. So that's why he doesn't want to use it. What specific years are covered in your book, Not One Inch? Well, the book discusses the period between roughly the end of the Cold War and the onset of COVID. In other words, what was the post-Cold War era that Putin has now ended? I think we are now moving into a new, more dangerous era. I wrote in the New York Times that it looks much like a new Cold War. Now, there are obvious differences. Putin is not a communist, for example. He's not trying to restore communist ideology. Uh, he's also not trying to reassemble the whole Soviet Union. He is more interested in getting the Slavic regions back under his control than the non-Slavic regions. So it's not a direct rerun. And obviously, the role of states like China, North Korea, and Iran would be vastly different. But we have clearly moved out of the post-Cold War era and into a new era. 
So my book, in essence, is a history of the post-Cold War era that is now over. And it has a special focus on the 1990s, because I believe that was the decade when there were multiple paths to the future possible. And through a series of decisions, Russian and American leaders foreclosed a lot of those possibilities until we got onto the timeline to the future that we're on today, which unfortunately is a very dark timeline. So the book, to uh, repeat, covers the period between the Cold War and COVID, but with a, a strong focus on the 1990s and the before we uh, spend more time on the, the, especially the 1990s, I wanted to, you alluded to this, I wanted to, uh, to hear a little bit more about the story behind the, the book. Uh, you've got 185 pages of source notes uh, in this, uh, and I heard you describe your research process as entering the past through as many portals as possible. So uh, tell me about some of the documents that you were able to unearth in this effort and which were the most difficult to get and why. Sure. Yeah, thanks for that question. There's a lot that went into this book before I even started writing it. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about it, not least because I hope it will encourage others who want to do serious historical research on these controversial topics. And hopefully this will help be helpful to them. So I became interested in this topic after writing my book, The Collapse, The Accidental Opening of the Berlin Wall because in the course of that research, it became apparent to me just how closely intertwined the history of German unification was with the history of NATO enlargement. But I also realized that since it's a relatively recent topic for a historian, I was going to need to get documents to classify. And I also was going to need to do interviews. And as you said, to enter the past through as many portals as possible. So also to watch video events, to watch audio events. So before I even wrote a word, I set about establishing basically my own archive of these events. I took advantage of the archival sources that were open. I went to television stations and asked to see footage from key events. I used audio files. And then when the documents were not open, I began a process of asking to get them declassified. And perhaps the biggest breakthrough I had was with the Clinton Presidential Library. And I'm very grateful to the archivist there and also to a body known as the uh, Interagency Security Classification Appeals Panel, or ICAP, who also helped me with my appeals. The most important documents that I got released were the transcripts, briefing papers, and summaries of all summits between President Bill Clinton and Russian President Boris Yeltsin. Clinton and Yeltsin had a uh, almost a bromance at the beginning. So in essence, I got the Bill Boris bromance in print. But it was hard. Uh, when my initial request failed, I had to go through an appeals process. It took nearly three years. Again, I'm very grateful to the Clinton archivists and the ICAP staff for helping me. And when I finally succeeded in the summer of uh, 2018, the Kremlin complained and that certainly got my attention because I've never had the Kremlin complain about one of my declassifications before. Uh, Peskov, uh, Putin's uh, Kremlin spokesman, said it was not right that the Clinton Library had released these documents. And his justification was that they covered currently serving politicians, meaning his boss, because, of course, Vladimir Putin got the start working for Boris Yeltsin. And so because of that, uh, the Kremlin complained about these documents being released. And I thought, well, if the Kremlin is complaining about documents being released, then I must have gotten some good stuff. Uh, that's, that's probably a good sign. 
And so I also had documents from the George H.W. Bush Presidential Library. I got uh, documents from five other countries. So I worked in Britain, in France, in Germany, in Poland, and in Russia. Uh, I had documents sent to me from other countries where I then couldn't go because of the pandemic. I worked with digital sources. So that's why I ended up having so many pages of citations at the end. Well, one thing is clear to readers uh, throughout the the narrative is that in each successive uh, set of U.S. leaders and and actually European leaders, Ukraine continually came up as a concern and worry, which more so than any of the other former Soviet states. Uh, Could you explain to people why Ukraine was so central to worry the worry on both sides? Yes, I was very surprised by that. As a researcher, it's always a bracing but ultimately rewarding experience when your sources surprise you and your sources make clear to you that something really matters that you had not thought of in advance. And for me, that was the overwhelming significance of Ukraine for the story of new enlargement. I had not expected that. But once I got those documents declassified and I started to get into them, I saw that from a very early date, both uh, President George H.W. Bush and then his successor, President Clinton, recognized that Ukraine was the key to peace in Europe. Again, I'm paraphrasing to repeat, but my exact quotations are in my book, Not One Inch. President Clinton at one point said something like, Ukraine is the linchpin of peace. Ukraine is the linchpin of peace in Europe. This is from, you know, 1994, and reading that, obviously, in present day was was really amazing. And in fact, that had a huge impact on NATO enlargement for the following reasons. So Ukraine, when it became independent in December 1991, was born nuclear. Ukraine instantly became the third biggest nuclear power in the world based on the amount of the Soviet arsenal on its territory. Now, I have to caveat that because command and control was still set up for Moscow. So in essence, Moscow had the keys to the nuclear power, but the Ukrainians were in physical possession of those weapons. And there were a lot of people, there were a lot of missile uh, technologists in Ukraine. So it was not inconceivable that Ukraine could have found some way to make that fully into its own nuclear arsenal. So when a country suddenly appears on the scene as the world's third biggest nuclear power, that gets everyone's attention. Uh, Secretary of State James Baker, in fact, went to George H.W. Bush and said, there is currently no foreign policy problem more deserving of your time or attention than what's happening to the former Soviet nuclear arsenal. It's now in four countries because the Soviet Union is broken up and there's arsenal in Russia, in Ukraine, in Belarus and Kazakhstan. And another one of the surprises in my research was what a huge split that caused inside the Bush presidency, the George H.W. Bush presidency. When that happened, the Secretary of Defense, Dick Cheney, said, you know what? This is the greatest thing ever. Instead of one big arsenal in the hands of Moscow, a very capable opponent, now we have this arsenal broken up among four countries who are much weaker and disorganized. That actually decreases the threat to us. We should do everything possible to encourage this fragmentation and to break up the Soviet Union into the tiniest possible pieces. And Secretary of State Jim Baker said, Dick, that's exactly wrong. That is exactly wrong. This is actually more dangerous. This is like Yugoslavia with nukes. We need to do everything possible to consolidate that arsenal inside Russia. And Baker won. Uh, He went to Bush and he convinced Bush that he was right. 
And so Baker started working with Russia to try to convince the Ukrainians to denuclearize, meaning either dismantle their weapons or give them back to Russia. So as this is happening in 1992, President Bush loses his his re-election campaign and Clinton becomes president and inherits this problem. And so here's where it starts to intersect with NATO. President Clinton sees that he's got Ukraine, this big nuclear power, this country that's becoming a market economy, that's becoming a democracy. And he says, uh, both publicly and privately, you know, we just erased the Cold War line across Europe. Why should we draw a new line by suddenly giving a few countries Article 5 and leaving Ukraine in the lurch and other post-Soviet republics in the lurch? People are just forgetting about post-Soviet republics, and they're going to be the linchpin of peace in Europe. So I, President Clinton, I don't think that we should just immediately give Article 5 to a few countries. We need to think about all of Europe and we need to think about Ukraine. And I was really amazed by that. And for that reason, the president favored an intermediate policy, which I, I thought was smart. It wasn't perfect, but it was smart, which was something called the Partnership for Peace, which still exists to this day. The idea there was the partnership, instead of drawing a new line across Europe, would blur that line. The partnership would be open both to Central and Eastern European states and to post-Soviet states. So it would provide a berth for Ukraine. It was even a way to define a place for Russia in the European security system. Now, one of the many great things about it is it was very ambiguous. Countries would become partners, but that did not include an Article 5 guarantee. So in other words, it was kind of a weak affiliation with a system of European security that gave the United States the ability to manage contingency by increasing or decreasing the tightness of that link. So I thought that that was a good idea, and that was in large part driven by Ukraine. But then having figured out what I think was a workable solution, again, it was not perfect. Uh, it was unloved. People said it was a waiting room. It wasn't you know, as, as wonderful as becoming a full NATO member, but it was minimally acceptable to all parties, Central and Eastern Europeans, Ukrainians, and Russians. Having figured out that workable solution, then through a combination of, of uh, Russian missteps and his own choices, President Clinton changed his mind. Boris Yeltsin made what even his own advisors later called a bad mistake, starting a brutal war in Chechnya in 1994. That came on top of his using violence to shed the blood of his political opponents in 1993. And those were really tragic mistakes that signaled that Russian democratization might not succeed. And once that happened, the Central and Eastern Europeans said, wait a minute, we had agreed to this partnership because we understood the argument that we shouldn't leave Ukraine on the wrong side of the line. But now that Moscow is shedding blood again, that's not enough for us. We need Article 5. We're not satisfied with the partnership. And then meanwhile, in the United States, the Republican Party won a huge victory in the November 1994 congressional midterm election, and it did so on the basis of a contract with America calling for giving Article 5 to countries as soon as possible. And Clinton had to pay attention to that if he was going to get reelected. And then Ukraine also started denuclearizing in exchange for financial inducements, which made Ukraine less important. That, mean giving, that made giving Ukraine a birth less important. And so as all these factors came together, Clinton said, you know, again, I'm paraphrasing. I said we shouldn't draw a new line across Europe, but looking at all of this, maybe we should. Let's, let's start, you know, giving out Article 5. And let's draw a new line across Europe. And so that, that foreclosed other options that would have been more ambiguous, that would have given us the ability to manage contingency, that would have given a birth to Russia and Ukraine, and started to put us onto the timeline that we're on to today. It's not the only factor, but it is a factor in how we got to where we are now.
we're at the halfway point of our conversation, and we'll have uh, some time to to spend a little bit more time with the two presidencies that occurred during the 1990s, the major focus of your uh, history in Not One Inch. Uh, there are so many chess pieces in play over the period of time. That you're t- it's really uh, uh, astonishing to go back and look at how many things were moving at the same time. One of those also during the 1990s was EU membership leading to the single currency. Uh, where did that factor into negotiations between the uh, the Eastern European countries, Russia, and the and the uh, the Western European countries as a bargaining chip? Sure. Let me make just a general comment to set the context, and then respond specifically to your question. So, general comment: Having just written a history of the 1990s, I can tell you they are an unruly decade. And by that, I mean there is just so much going on. You have the collapse of an empire leading to the creation of nearly two dozen new states. You have the door opening to democratization, the spread of market economies, the spread of neoliberalism. But you also have the door opening to darker developments, passing in the Balkans, and then de-democratization, and then the rise of authoritarianism. And you have uh, prisoners rising from their prison cells to presidencies and winning Nobel Prizes. I mean, there's just a ton going on. And so in order to have any hope of getting from the beginning to the end of the list of actors, events, and locales, you need a story to follow. Otherwise, the book is just going to spiral out of control. So I made a conscious decision to write a history of this decade by holding on to the through line of the fight over NATO enlargement between Washington and Moscow. That was my through line. But there are a lot of different through lines you could use for other people out there thinking about working on this time period. You could follow the spread of neoliberalism. You could follow the breakdown of the breakdown into violence in the Balkans. And to come to your question, you could follow the enlargement of the EU or to be more precise, the non-enlargement of the EU. As I started researching my story, I realized there was an interaction there because the EU was hesitant to expand into Central and Eastern Europe. And behind the scenes, there was even some very impolite language with Western European leaders saying, we don't want to get into the swamp of Central and Eastern Europe, which I was amazed at how disrespectful that was of people who had just bravely thrown off Soviet oppression. And so in the decade of the 1990s, you do not see the EU expanding into Central and Eastern Europe. That doesn't happen until the next decade. And so, I mean, there is enlargement, uh, but to countries that had formerly been neutrals. So as the Central and Eastern Europeans realized that, they began to press NATO all the more urgently to join NATO because they felt, well, if we can't get into one Western club, let's try the other one. And that's an understandable process, but in some ways regrettable, because for many of the later developments, I think it it would have been better to have the EU present sooner. So, for example, there starts to be a lot of talk about NATO expanding to lock in democracy. But as we see in Poland and Hungary, you know, early NATO enlargement to Poland and Hungary did not lock in democracy, right? We see Viktor Orban in Hungary, which, according to various... um, uh, think tanks such as Freedom House, it can no longer be fully classified as a democracy. It's the first country in Europe that, that's not a democracy, which is a problem because the EU is supposed to be an alliance of democracies. 
So uh, I think that the EU was punching below its weight in the early days by being so hesitant about enlarging into Central and Eastern Europe. And I understand why, because there's a lot of financial commitments that come with that. But it, this clearly in the 1990s was a historic moment. As I say to my students, cold wars are not short-lived affairs, so thaws are precious. And neither Russia nor the West took the best advantage of the thaw in the 1990s. And I think that applies to the EU as well. So to recap, because of the EU's uh, hesitancy about expansion, that made NATO enlargement, as I said, more desirable and in some ways speeded it up, but in some ways sped it up, but um, meant that, you know, NATO, you know, NATO was designed as a military alliance. It was not designed as a, a, a an organization that was meant to democratize places. And now we see that it didn't lock in democ full, fully lock in democracy in places like Poland and Hungary. And you have to wonder, would that have come out differently if the EU had expanded more quickly? For the uh, Bush 41 and Bill Clinton presidencies, you use a metaphor, uh, the uh, it's a three fateful turns of the ratchet. Uh, that happened during these two presidencies. So before I have you discuss them, what's the metaphor of the ratchet mean to you? Sure. So a ratchet is a tool that allows motion in one direction only. In other words, once you've turned, you're not going to be turning back. And I thought that was a useful metaphor to explain three moments where first uh, George H.W. Bush and then Bill Clinton made decisions that foreclosed other possibilities, that foreclosed other timelines. Again, for just for context, one of the um, theoretical bases for the book is the notion of punctuated equilibrium. This is a theory used by many fields, among others, evolutionary biology, in particular, the evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould. And he explained it as follows. He said, you know, I, as an evolutionary biologist, I don't actually see a little evolution one day and then a little evolution the next day and then the next day. In other words, I do not actually see gradualism. What I see are long periods where relatively little changes, so periods of relative stasis or equilibrium, and then those are dramatically punctuated by some event, such as a massive asteroid slamming into the Earth, and the climate changes that result kill off all the dinosaurs or kill off most of the dinosaurs, thus opening the door to a new equilibrium dominated by mammals. And I found that theory useful. And I realized as a historian, because I like to look at things in depth, and there are more documents and historical events out there than days of my life, that it's worthwhile to focus on these punctuational moments, which I also call ordering moments. And decisions inside those ordering moments have an outsized impact. Another way to think of it is in the periods of stasis or equilibrium, that's when structure dominates. But in these ordering moments or punctuational moments, that's when human agency comes to the fore, when contingency comes to the fore. And that's when these decisions or ratchet turns that foreclose other possibilities define the new equilibrium and then have lasting effects. So I identified three ratchet turn moments, as you rightly uh, mentioned in the book. 
So during the presidency of George H.W. Bush, momentous events, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the 1991 coup in the Soviet Union, which led to its unexpected collapse of uh, the Soviet Union. And you write that 1991 particularly was a time when an emerging Russian state was most open to cooperation with America. So what was George H.W. Bush's ratchet turn that, that led to a, a different equilibrium? Well, his ratchet turn took place, in my opinion, in 1990. So to recap, the Berlin Wall has come down. It's clear the Cold War order is crumbling. And the question is, what's going to happen now with the post-Cold War order? How, what's it going to look like? And you had a lot of people offering suggestions. For example, some of these former dissidents who had been opposed to the Soviet Union and had now become leaders of their country in East Germany, in Poland, in Hungary. Many of them had been pacifists. And that was at a time when being a pacifist meant having your future canceled. If you refused to do mandatory military service, you would then be denied admission to university. This is inside the Warsaw Pact. You know, you would be assigned a job as a janitor despite whatever academic skills you might have. I mean, there were serious consequences for being pacifists. And yet many of these dissidents had been pacifists and they did not like either military bloc. And when they came to power, uh, leaders such as Václav Havel said, you know, what we really should do now is we should dissolve both NATO and the Warsaw Pact. There were others who went even farther and said, in light of the horrors visited on the world from our region, so World War I, World War II, the Holocaust, we should dissolve all the borders between our countries, demilitarize and denuclearize our region in perpetuity, and turn ourselves into a permanent neutral bridge of peace between East and West. Now, you can say that would have been crazy, but that would have been a new world order, right? That was one of the visions. There were other visions. There were visions of pan-European security, which would not involve the United States. Mikhail Gorbachev proposed simply merging NATO and the Warsaw Pact. So you have all of these ideas bubbling up, and President George H.W. Bush made clear that he felt strongly uh, that the United States should keep NATO and its ability to enlarge. As President Bush said about himself, I don't do the vision thing. In other words, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. He felt very strongly that the United States had won the Cold War and it had won it with NATO and it had won it with a NATO that had enlarged during the Cold War. So he felt very strongly that uh, the world should stick with that European security order. And the leader of Germany, Chancellor Kohl, agreed with him. And when it was put to a vote in, in Germany, because there was a free vote, uh, representatives of that position won, won a, a plurality. So uh, it had Bush's endorsement, it had voters' endorsement. Also, political scientists know that big institutions are sticky. That means big institutions like NATO, once they come into existence, tend to persist. So in a sense, it was not surprising that President George H.W. Bush won, that his vision won, that his ratchet turn succeeded. What was surprising was his ability to classify it as a new world order, since it was not, since it was very much a perpetuation of the Cold War order. So that was the first ratchet turn under George H.W. Bush. So that meant that post-Cold War security would look like Cold War security, meaning there would be NATO Europe and non-NATO Europe. And once that happened, the people in Central and Eastern Europe who've been calling for all military pacts to dissolve said, okay, well that failed. So now we see the name of the game. Post-Cold War security is going to look like Cold War security. So now the name of the game is to try to be on the correct side of the line this time and get into NATO. 
So that then under George H.W. Bush was the ratchet turn that set the parameters uh, of the fact that it would be NATO and not non-NATO as opposed to any other structure. Bill Clinton, 1993 to January of 2001, and uh, you quote him as seeing his responsibility towards Europe as a terrible responsibility. Uh, Earlier, you talked about the debate over the Partnership for Peace. Um, He has two ratchet turns in there, but um, one of the things I wanted to get on the table during this era came from a review of your book which said that it's the first time that it challenges the assumptions that NATO expansion was exclusively the product of American initiatives, referencing the power of the arguments by Lech Walesa in Poland and Vaclav Havel in in Czech Republic uh, for NATO admission. How how influential were their, their arguments, their pleas for NATO expansion in that era? Yes, obviously they were very influential. And actually that line, you have a terrible responsibility, that line actually comes from Polish President Lech Walesa. He uh, issued, he made that statement to the Americans saying, you know, you have this, this moment of peace in Europe. And uh, also it's, you know, this moment when Russia is democratizing, that's unprecedented. And it's, it's a terrible responsibility to have so much potential and to be responsible for shaping the future with it. So that was what Left Valenza was uh, was trying to say with that with that line, which he actually said to the diplomat uh, Richard Holbrook. And uh, uh, thank you for mentioning the reviews. I've, I've been, been fortunate to have have strong reviews. I, I must, in all honesty, say I'm, I'm not the only person to have emphasized the significance of Central and Eastern Europeans because they are hugely important to this story. They had become new sovereign states. They had become new democracies. They had become new market economies. And they had done that, particularly uh, Poland, uh, by uh, bravely, under the leadership of solidarity, pushing back against Soviet domination. And they had every right to want to be in NATO. I I think that's an important aspect of my book, Not One Inch, to bring across. My book is is not an anti-NATO enlargement book. I think that the Central and Eastern European states, as I just said, were completely justified to want to be in NATO. And I think NATO had enlarged before, could enlarge again. Enlargement was neither unprecedented nor unreasonable. The problem with NATO enlargement, in my view, is how it happened. And this gets back to the ratchet turns. So to recap, we had the first ratchet turn under President George H.W. Bush, which decided that the future of European security would remain NATO and non-NATO Europe. So now, you've, you've, in other words, you've limited the parameters of possible to that. You're no longer going to have any of these other visions. So now the question is, uh, how, you know, how, how do you proceed with NATO enlargement? And initially, President Clinton, as I was just describing, says, you know, because of Ukraine, I think the way we should proceed is slowly and in, a, an, in an intentionally ambiguous way where we offer these loose affiliations to a lot of new states, including post-Soviet ones. But then gradually we, we bring on new full members. The key, of course, is Article 5, which is the heart of the NATO treaty. It's the article that says every member state should treat an attack on any other member st- state as an attack on itself. That's a very, very strong guarantee, and it is in a treaty that is ratified by all members. So that's a very strong guarantee, and we should pause before we give that out. We shouldn't just give that out on the assumption that we'll never have to live up to it. 
So let's start with this partnership for peace and uh, give a weaker affiliation and also define a place for Russia and Ukraine, which, which join the partnership for peace. And let's move forward slowly and carefully. So that's the second ratchet turn under President Clinton. And that, I think, full disclosure, was given the set of options available at that time, a smart move. But then you have a third ratchet turn. So as I said before, this is driven largely by Russian missteps, the brutal invasion of Chechnya, the, the use of violence against political opponents, de-democratization and rising corruption in Russia. That leads the Central and Eastern Europeans, we asked about, to push even harder to be in NATO. That combines with Ukraine denuclearizing and becoming less important, as I mentioned before. That also combines with the success of the Republican Party pushing for Article 5. There's also the success of people inside the Clinton administration who feel very strongly that NATO enlargement should be happening more quickly. That's uh, Tony Lake, the National Security Advisor, uh, Dick Holbrook, who I already mentioned, and then increasingly Stroh Talbot, the president's main Russia advisor. And under combination of all these events and pressure from his advisors, Clinton executes what I call the third ratchet turn, which is contradicting himself. He decides to move forward with giving Article 5 to a small number of countries, drawing a new line between Article 5 and non-Article 5 Europe, leaving Ukraine on the other side of that line. So he makes the decision to do what he earlier said he didn't want to do. And so that's then the kind of NATO enlargement that we get. If there's one big takeaway from the book, it's that NATO enlargement was not one thing. For too long, the debate has been, I think, too simplistic. There are uh, people who support NATO enlargement and people who are opposed to it, and they basically yell at each other. And what I'm trying to say in the book is, you know, we, we need more nuance. There were multiple ways to enlarge NATO known at the time. You could do it through the Partnership for Peace. You could do it the way that actually happened. Uh, the British had another proposal. The British said, you know, uh, NATO enlarge, and this is in the mid-1990s, they said NATO expansion is really going to irritate the Russians. What we should do, you know, while they're weak is we should expand NATO once. I mean, we can talk in public about NATO still being open, but in reality, we should pick a large number of countries now and get them in NATO now and be done because it'll be too hard to keep having rounds of NATO expansion. So there should only be one big round of NATO expansion. And the Americans, and particularly Strobe Talbot, pushed back against the British and said that is exactly the wrong thing to do. We need to do the exact opposite. We need to make clear that NATO enlargement will be open-ended. As a matter of fact, we have an acronym for what we should do. And the acronym is ZIBROD. S-I-B-R-O-D, meaning small is beautiful, robust open door. Small is beautiful, robust open door. And that the idea there is you intentionally give Article 5 to a very small number of countries to make it clear that you're going to keep going, to make it clear that it's beyond doubt that there will be multiple rounds. And Strobe Talbot internally already in the early 90s was saying, you know, NATO enlargement will simply not be concluded unless or until we get to the Baltics. So we need to make clear that we're going to keep going. So you British have it exactly wrong and the Americans win. And so that's the mode of NATO expansion that we get is this kind of open-ended expansion. So what I really want to make clear with this um, rather long uh, summary is that there wasn't just one NATO expansion. There were multiple kinds. And I think having stuck with a different kind might have lessened the frictions with Moscow and uh, helped not to keep things perfect with Moscow. Certainly the Bill-Boris relationship got very bumpy and what, that would have happened no matter what, in large part because of Yeltsin's drinking. But 
I think it would have decreased the friction with Moscow on this issue that is now such a problem. We have about eight minutes left in our conversation about the new book, Not One Inch. Uh, I, I just want to play this clip because we've talked about, and you just referenced Boris Yeltsin and Bill Clinton. How many times did they meet during the 1990s? There were 18 summits. 18 summits. Okay, well, this one... More than ever before or after between an American and a, a leader in Moscow. This uh, the clip is from uh, March 21st, 1997. Let's just listen to both of them. Yes, indeed. We do maintain our positions. We believe that the eastward direction, expansion of NATO is a mistake, and a serious one at that. We are not attempting to draw a different dividing line in Europe, just somewhat further to the east. What we are trying to do is to develop structures that can grow and evolve over time so that there will be a united effort by free people to join their resources together to reinforce each other's security, each other's independence, and their common interdependence. And I believe we will succeed at that. Mary Elise Serrati, the author of of Not One Inch. What I wanted to do at this point with this clip is actually uh, talk about what became apparent in reading the book is that the the strength and weaknesses and the worldviews and domestic events happening under the watch of the leaders in the United States and uh, Russia had such a significance on the outcome of events. Can you comment about that specifically with Clinton and Yeltsin? Yes. That's a a great clip. Uh, That uh, summit was a particularly uh, contentious one, as you can perhaps see from that clip. And you can hear Yeltsin saying clearly, we don't want this NATO enlargement to happen. And you can hear President Clinton, in essence, trying to square a circle, or as I put it in the book, square a triangle. And what I mean by that is the following. President Clinton was in a very, very challenging position. He comes into office, he's a young president from Arkansas, and he sees that there are a lot of foreign policy issues pressing in on him, even though his focus was originally more on domestic issues. And The problem is that the United States has to balance between the desires of, on the one hand, the Central and Eastern Europeans, uh, on the other hand, Moscow, and then additionally, Ukraine. And so the question is, how do you, as I said, square this triangle? Because there's three places. But the good news is that triangles, unlike circles, can be squared. And so you've got the problem, Central and Eastern Europeans want to be in NATO. Then you've got Moscow saying, we don't want NATO enlargement, as you heard there. And then you have Ukraine in some way needing a role defined for itself. And the reason that in my book, Not One Inch, I like the solution to the partnership for peace is that it it squared that triangle because all the players found it minimally acceptable. They didn't love it. The Poles, for example, agreed to join it through clenched teeth because they wanted to be in NATO. But President Clinton personally spoke to the Polish leader, Lech Walesa, and said, you know, you, the Poles of all people, should understand what it's like to be left on the wrong side of the line. We can't do that to the Ukrainians. And so through clenched teeth, the Poles accepted it. The other Central and Eastern Europeans accepted it. The Russians accepted it and joined the partnership. And Ukraine accepted it and joined the partnership. And so that was, I think, a workable solution. But then once Clinton changes his mind, what you heard him in that clip there was his now trying to you know, deal with the consequences of that, because then he changes his mind and decides that he is just going to give Article 5 to a small number of countries. Obviously, 
he has to work within NATO, but the U.S. preferences with regard to military issues generally dominate within NATO. And so you hear him trying to square the circle where he's saying to Yeltsin, well, we don't really want to draw a new line. We want to set up a structure that will somehow open doors even as we're expanding Art 5. And you can kind of hear the frustration he's having because this solution is not working as well. And that clip is a particularly good one because it actually sets up many of the issues we're seeing today. Uh, what uh, Clinton and Yeltsin end up doing is negotiating something called the NATO-Russia Founding Act in 1997, which is signed on May 27th, 1997, which as some of your viewers may know is a date that Putin keeps citing. And what happens is that Yeltsin uh, goes out in public after this is signed and says incorrectly, I've just signed a document that gives Russia a veto over NATO enlargement. Now that is not what the document did. And when he started saying that after it was signed in May, 1997, American diplomats contacted the Russian foreign ministry and said, why is Yeltsin saying this? And the foreign ministry said, we've explained it to him, but we can't get him to stop. And of course, Yeltsin was known for having a serious drinking problem. He also had various heart issues. Uh, so he had you know, a whole host of issues, but this created this kind of public sense mistaken that Russia had gotten a veto over NATO expansion on May 27th, 1997. So fast forward to the current crisis. Last, uh, at the end of last year, President Putin took the odd step of distributing these treaties to the West, essentially saying, sign here or else I'm going to invade Ukraine. And that's unusual because usually treaties are negotiated. They're not distributed for signature. And these, these documents even had signature lines prepared. And these, these treaties said, among other things, NATO will take its military posture back to where it was on May 27th, 1997, which led to many people around the world saying, why May 27th, 1997? And which led to me saying, oh, my God, this is you know from my book. It was a little horrifying how my expertise went from academic to practical very quickly when this happened. I thought, oh, my gosh, he wants to try to make that a real veto. He wants to say, you know, we got a veto as of May 27th, 1997. And I want to push NATO's military structure back to where that was. So that is a whole, you know, a whole nother controversy that Putin has instrumentalized to justify, I think, incorrectly his brutalizing of Ukraine. Well, we only have one minute left and the, the issues are so, so so complex. So I think it's best uh, to direct readers to your book, Not One, one Inch, for much more detail on the events leading up to where we are today with Russia's bloody invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Dr. Mary Elise Serrati, thank you so much for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Appreciate your expertise. Thank you so much. And let me just say again, express a word of admiration for the bravery with, with which Ukrainians are resisting the Russian aggression uh, that Putin is trying and failing to justify based on this history. And thank you for your attention to this important issue. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 